DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We now begin with part two of our conversation with Archbishop George Lucas discussing Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Welcome, Archbishop. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you always. Thank you for helping us to take such a beautifully rich dive into yet another wonderful document from Vatican II, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes. It's really worth this exploration. I think so, for sure. The Council Fathers were addressing challenges that they saw in front of them and looming, perhaps, you know, uh, now some decades ago. But I think what we find as we read and reflect, especially on this pastoral constitution, is there's still something very important that we can take from what was said then and applies very readily to the challenges that we're facing in what we're now calling the modern world. And I'm sure, you know, decades from now, that they'll still be very compelling. We have discussed before that the church has a place in the world. It needs to be in the world, but it's not to be conformed by the world. That's right. Jesus sent us, his disciples, and all of us in, into the world you know, to announce the gospel, uh, to announce the kingdom of God. And along with that goes the command to love our brothers and sisters, to love others as we want to be loved, to love our enemies. So whatever circumstance we find ourselves in and whatever's going on in, in the world, we need to be there. As you said, we're not to be necessarily join in uh, to, to what might be happening or to conform ourselves to it. But the, there was never the thought that, that the church would, as a whole, retreat from the world. There are those few people who are called to cloistered vocation, uh, perhaps. But even so, they're connected to the world in the liturgy and through prayer and, and through their concern for the welfare of the church and of, of all of our brothers and sisters. But certainly the rest of us are given the gift of life in Christ so that we might have it ourselves and and have salvation in him at the same time so that we might share that light of, of the gospel, the, the light who is Christ, with as many as we can. I think that's essential. For most lady, we are called to be in the world, to be able to be that leaven, to be able to bring Christ, that light, into the world, and not to hide it under a barrier, that bushel basket, as it were. Right, not to keep faith as a private gift, which I think is the, the image of putting it under the under the basket. You know, I have this wonderful life, but nobody else is going to see it or know about it. I mean, I agree absolutely 
absolutely with what you have said that the fathers of the Second Vatican Council really saw this as an imperative, you know, that, that if the world is going to be transformed and if the, the gospel is going to have an effect in practical ways in our time and place, it's going to be primarily the, the work of the lay faithful. That it's not, oh, well, I guess we don't have enough other people to do it, so the, the laity will, will do it, but quite the opposite, that that responsibility falls primarily on you and on your sisters and brothers. I hope that all will see that as a, as a happy responsibility, as a, a real privilege to share in, in the saving mission of Jesus Christ in just the way that we can. Uh, each of us has our personalities, and we have our pluses and minuses. No one's perfect in, in terms of faith or, or charity. We're not supposed to wait till we become perfect or until someday when, when we get better or get it all right. But day by day, as the opportunities present themselves, each of us is, is asked, but in this case we're talking particularly about, about the baptized uh, members of the, the faithful were asked to have an effect on the world in which we live. An effect for good, of course. Uh, it, it grows out of our relationship with, with Jesus Christ. Sometimes we, we have the chance to be very explicit about why we're doing something, why we're offering something to someone because it's, it's about our faith. Sometimes we have the chance to speak about it, but we we hope that there would be a, a warmth and a goodness that flows from us, that radiates from us, from our our decisions, our the way that we relate uh, with people that would somehow be, be attractive. And even if the people around us don't exactly know about our faith, they've been touched by Jesus through us, and that has its own effect. Okay, now that song comes to my mind. It's an old one, at least as far as the last several generations is concerned, but it's essentially that they will know we are Christians by our love. And that's a very true adage, isn't it? It's about how we love in the world. Right. We hope that it, it's true that people will know us that way. It's a judgment against us, you know, if, if, if we just looked and act, look and act like everybody else. We're not trying to show off or act superior to anyone. But there should be a difference in kind, we might say, in our Christian communities that are both attractive in terms of bringing people in, but also generously outgoing the love, the light of Christ with others. In Gaudium et Spes, they make a point of saying that as a Christian living in the world, you are going to be challenged by some very large problems. It's not going to be easy. And they're pretty clear-eyed about what's ahead of us. It's almost prophetic how they could see these things as they were writing this back in the early 1960s. Yes, I agree. The problems are still with us. Again, these are problems in the world. So we're they're not talking about problems in the church exactly, but and there are some of those we know. But these are problems in the world into which Christians are sent. So what is it that we bring in the face of these problems or challenges? Even though the council fathers in the 60s could never have foreseen some of the practical circumstances that are in front of us today, the, the way they speak about the gift that we bring from our Catholic faith, gifts that we experience ourselves, but also can share with our contemporary culture, that those are still very compelling, I think. Now, on the first part of the document, they make a rather strong, beautiful case for the dignity of each human person. In part two, they will begin to discuss many different issues, like marriage and the family, the human culture, social and political and economic life. They'll even go on to talk about the bonds among nations, war and peace. It runs the gambit, but at the very beginning of part two, after that introduction, 
of the human person. It's about how the person lives, how they're formed. And essentially, it's under that banner in the document that is entitled The Dignity of Marriage and the Family. That's a key cornerstone, isn't it? It is. And I think the Council Fathers devoted more time, more ink, more, more teaching to marriage and the family than you would have been led to expect from previous councils. So it, it was on the mind and on, on the heart of the Council Fathers, clearly. And you can see why. Even then, there were many stresses on family life in what we would call modern times, modern culture, the things that perhaps didn't exist before. We, we know vocation of marriage was, you know, was never easy, just simple and all, smooth sailing. But for centuries, the prevailing culture would have supported the, the institution of marriage and, and the permanence of marriage would have, have supported the expectation that there would be children for marriages, Christian marriages particularly. So the, certainly the, the teaching of the, of the church hasn't changed and the importance of marriage to society ha- hasn't changed. But the, the cultural supports and expectations are, were very different already then and, and that, that has continued to change. Marriage is often referred to as an institution. It's about forming individuals that will go out into society. It's in that place, that hub, where we learn to interact with male, female, different personality types, so that when we go out into the world, we're stronger citizens, hopefully, and are able to deal and interact with each other appropriately. Sure. For any of us, I hope for most of us, it's our experience that we grew into the mature adults that we have become in great part because of what we experienced from the time we were conceived, really, by the time we were born and the way that, that we were raised, the way that we learned to interact with siblings if we, if we had them, the way we learned to deal with authority, the way we were able to make mistakes and learn from those, you know, accept correction and redirection. We learned to forgive and, and to be forgiven. The result, as you have said then, is that we can take our place in society as mature adults, be agents for the building up of society. From our Christian families and from our Christian education and formation, we also have the the opportunity to grow not only into productive citizens, but into mature disciples of of Jesus Christ, also productive citizens. We marry those, pardon the pun, but we marry those two aspects of our life and then take the place the council understands that we all have in the world as a transforming leaven. I think it's important for us to look back once again at that time, the early 1960s in which this document was originally authored, because at that time in history, not only had they just come off two ungodly world wars, along with many other smaller wars, if that can be said, you can call any war small, but they were also dealing with a rise in birth control. Now, that had been something that had been discussed as far back as the 1920s and in the 1930s. But there was also another issue that came forward, and that was the rise of what they would term no-fault divorce. It became easier for people to leave marriages. Now, the idea of what a marriage is, what a commitment is, that began to break down. Many of those things between birth control and divorce, it became a cauldron or a pot that caused so many problems. And I think the church, as you can see in Gaudi Metzpez, is trying to understand all of that 
in trying to offer a clarion call saying to all of us in the world, stop, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Some of the things that, you know, they're much more clear now. As I said earlier, the, the cultural supports and encouragements for a traditional and rich understanding of, of marriage that existed for so long, those were, were starting to, to fall apart. And the, you gave a couple of couple of really good examples with contraception and, and, and with the a widespread acceptance of divorce and a, really a look for a way to construct, as you said, no-fault divorce. Was, it doesn't make sense in, in our understanding of marriage, but it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's become a fact of life. So that it's a commitment that is designed by God and that is envisioned in the vocation of marriage that's faithful, that's permanent, that's open, open to children. Uh, suddenly that's all thrown up in the air, again, culturally, it's not in the church. The church's understanding re- uh, remains clear. And it shouldn't make sense to anybody uh, how important good families and strong family life, how important those are to the neighborhood, to the community, to the nation, to the family of nations. We would think we would want to do anything we could to strengthen that institution of marriage, the community of the, of the family. But we've been making decisions culturally to go really in, you know, in the other direction and to pull out supports from underneath marriage so that you know, by now, in our, in our time, the desire for marriage is, is less among younger people, younger adults. Many are putting off the decision to be married. More and more people living alone in our culture than we have experienced it in the past. Don't judge any one person. You know, it's a vocation. Each person called to marriage has to discern that and be ready to commit to it. But it is an example of the the cultural supports and expectations being so radically different that the path toward marriage and then the, the support for a couple in their marriage is, it doesn't exist, that it did not so, so long ago. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. 
For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. There was a time when society itself, along with the church, saw marriage, as we just mentioned, that place where you could help form healthy members of the society. It benefited society to support marriages. But I think sometimes we become confused in our understanding of what marriage is if we look at it from society's perspective first and foremost because we see it as a civil contract where I go down to the judge, the judge affirms the contract made between the two people as opposed to a sacramental marriage which has a whole different type of meaning when viewed from the perspective of the church. And Gaudium at best tries to articulate that fuller understanding, doesn't it? And John Paul himself would go in his teachings under his pontificate to try to articulate that, didn't he? Yeah, certainly. Uh, flowing from this, the teachings of the Council, and then people who were charged with implementing it and expanding the teaching of the Council, like, like St. John Paul II did so beautifully, have given us a richness in our teaching and our understanding of you know, it's a natural institution, we can say, so it's existed from, from the beginning, part of God's plan, as every good thing is. Jesus, in the Paschal Mystery, raised it to the dignity of a sacrament within the church. But the natural institution of marriage has a natural goodness to it, and the grace is, is active there, and particularly for those who, that's the most complete understanding of marriage that, that they can have so far. They, too, contribute to each other's welfare, the, the spouses, and to the welfare of the children, and to the welfare of society by having a strong marriage and a strong family. You know, anybody ought to be able to see that that's good. Most people, when they take the time to reflect on it, 
which we don't often enough do, can, can see that, that that's good. Now we just realize it's more important than ever to, to teach about the beauty of marriage, the grace that is available there and that flows from it into the neighborhood, into, into society, into the children, certainly, because there's less and less of the natural institution or understanding of marriage. And this is a unique gift that the Lord gives to the world through the church's understanding. As we just said, God Amit Spez, in part one, is establishing the dignity of each human person. Chapter one of part two of the document begins to articulate, to show, as it were, what happens to that person when they, when they are wounded or harmed by the excess of self-love, self-possession, as opposed to caring for the other. The document will go on to talk about areas such as polygamy, the nature of divorce, the nature of free love, excessive self-love, and the inappropriate use of birth control. And they will teach how this not only harms society and does damage to the family, but how it, it indeed damages the dignity of that person who is conducted in that activity. Right. So the majority of people we understand are called to live their vocation in the church and in the world in the, within a, a holy and, and chaste uh, marriage. And so it's, it's where their dignity comes to full fruition, you might say, in this complementarity, this partnership that God himself has designed. The children in a family come to understand their own dignity and, and their place in God's plan and their place in the world because of how they understand their place in this community of, of the family. And we hope that it's there among other places, but there primarily that we learn to become less selfish, that we each learn, well, the world doesn't just revolve around me and my desires or even my needs. So there are other ways that that is is taught, other ways that that we're formed. So yeah, in this section, you know, it's called urgent problems. So the pastoral constitution points out the problems, but also shares the teaching, we might say is the antidote to the problem. And we have the teaching not just because there's a problem, we have the teaching because of God's design for the human life, for for human flourishing. But it's an an invitation for us to think that, that God's design is better. (laughs) <laughs> than the things that we keep trying to come up with ourselves, which are often harmful or at least limiting. Gaudi Mitzvah encourages fathers to be fully present in the family. It encourages mothers to the opportunity to be able to fully nurture that family. And I think that's so vital. I know for me personally, it wasn't until we had children, until my husband and I had that first child, that I began to really begin thinking outside of myself, to really desire to care and love another. There are, of course, those in our society today and in our churches today who are married, who may be at a later stage in their life, or who may be unable to have children. They don't have children. They are called, too, to offer that same type of nurturing, to be that same type of presence in the heart of the community that they've been placed in. Yeah, there's some of us who aren't called to the vocation of marriage at all and still have the same responsibilities in a different set of circumstances, but to get out of ourselves, get over ourselves, you know, get be focused on the Lord, but also on on how we live for our lives for others, for, for the, the sake of others, the welfare of others. 
Archbishop, how can we respond to a society that seems to be demanding, out of maybe this deep woundedness, a view of marriage that's outside of the church, but it wants the church to conform to its view? Yeah, so it's, it's important to make sure that we say that how the church views marriage is not just one opinion among many. This is the reflection of God's design. We have received that through revelation, but as I said earlier, it's, it's also common sense. There's, there's a natural understanding of the human person and of the institution of marriage that is available to us through our reflection. There are an, a number of misunderstandings, whether somehow innocent or very uh, deliberate, either for myself or deliberately misleading others' agendas, you know, that are around in our time that I think the, even the, the Council Fathers couldn't foresee. They were seeing already that, the, that there was a challenge to, to the understanding and the, the goodness of, of marriage. But now the thought that in, in our civil society and culture that we would support marriage between two people of the same gender, the, the whole question of transgenderism was never something I don't think that they thought of. Again, it wasn't unheard of in those days, but, but it, the, to the extent that it's be, being emphasized and really promoted now is just more evidence, I, I would say, that we're culturally traveling farther down a, a wrong path. And so again, the, the church doesn't say, well, you, you know, we have our understanding of marriage as if it were, oh, so that there's this multiple choice now, you know, we're trying to get more people to think about this. We preach this as true in God's plan, but also as a beautiful opportunity. You were saying before, you know, to understand more fully our human dignity and then to really you know, reinforce and and enhance and highlight the dignity of, of the human person in God's plan. There are some very significant principles that have to be understood and lovingly communicated to those who may have a misunderstanding of how the church views marriage. It's not about necessarily that the church doesn't want people to be happy or that the, the church it doesn't want people to be alone or anything like that. Yeah, sure. And that, of course, there's a lot of differences with so-called same-sex relationships or same-sex marriage. From our understanding of marriage of, of man and woman, you know, we, we want to look upon our brothers and sisters all with great love and, and with as much understanding as we can. Because we know that from the earliest times, you know, we've that the scriptures have taught that it's not good for man to be alone, not good for a woman to be alone. So there's this desire on, on the part of everybody not to be alone, not to be isolated, and not to be cut off. And so if it doesn't seem possible to enter into a, a true marriage of, with someone of the opposite gender and to be able to do that honestly and fruitfully, so, well, then where am I? Where do I fit in the communion of the church? Where do I fit in society? And we haven't been, I, I don't think, as, as understanding and as good as we could be. People have to make their own decisions. They're responsible for them. But as a community, you know, how do we welcome somebody who finds themselves in the situation of not being attracted to people of the opposite gender? not being called then to, to marriage as we understand it in the church as God has designed it. Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons and now culturally and, and arguments that, that people make in favor of that or other situations, but we can agree on the fact that isolation is not good for anybody and that the fear of isolation is, can be real um, and a real burden. So the, the mission of Jesus is communion. Mission of the church is, is then communion, so that, that we, we want to make sure everyone fits somewhere in, with their human dignity, really honored and, and intact. So th this is a challenge we're, we're working through now. You know, we, we don't, again, we proclaim very clearly the, the, the nature and, and the dignity of marriage, man and a woman. 
But the other things that are on offer uh, now culturally, they involve people. And so our, without compromising the true understanding of marriage and without just saying in a relativistic way, well, one thing's as good as another, as long as, you, as, long as you're okay with it. But, but we still have the challenge of, of the, as you just kind of started out by saying that someone's saying, well, I want what, what you have. And, you know, if what you have is good, there's nothing wrong with somebody wanting that. That may not be possible for them, but, but what's the, is there some kind of good like that, some other good that the Lord has in mind for them that they could experience in the church? It's the sacramental nature of marriage, isn't it, that's misunderstood. It's, it's not the same thing as a contractual arrangement under the state. In many countries, on various continents, the two are separated. But in the United States, they're connected in some ways because of the ceremony that we have, that the priest is also an officiating witness for the state of this wedding. But for Catholics who are coming to the church seeking that sacramental marriage, they need to understand that it's not just an agreement. It's a vow. Yeah, but they're, so they're related. You know, grace builds on nature, and so the, the understanding of a contractual relationship is not a bad thing. It's, a, it's deficient, you know, in terms of our understanding of the sacrament of marriage. There's so much more, you know, it's so much richer, as you, as you know yourself, you know, from living that vocation. But, so that's what we try to, to teach and communicate. People like me can, can teach the theology of it, and I'd love to, and others can learn it from me. But really, many people learn about, about the covenantal nature of Christian marriage and the sacramental nature of it from being around and, and being with those who are, are already living the sacrament, whether they're able to explain the theology of it or not, you're, you understood it well enough to commit to it, and you know, your understanding has grown. But, you know, remember Pope John Paul II taught what we now call the theology of the body, found in a really thick book. Those were really teachings at his Wednesday audiences, week by week, over a number of years. And so it, it's kind of hard, to, especially in this culture, to communicate the nature of human life and love, particularly as, as it relates to, to marriage, you know, in a couple of hours or a couple of sessions. We do the best we can when we're preparing people for marriage or when we're teaching a course on it. But it's, it's an understanding into which we have to be drawn. We're open to it, and, and by God's grace. It's not saying we should never say anything. If we can't do a whole course, we should say what we can. We can preach about it and talk about it. Plenty of good things to read. But in the current culture, it just it doesn't necessarily come so naturally as it, as it once did for people to understand and, and grasp that. But we do see those of, of us who have the chance to prepare couples for marriage, others who are involved in, in, in that good work. We do see it beautiful, grace at work very beautifully in the hearts and in the lives of people as they do begin to catch the depth of, of what is being offered to them and beauty and power of it. It does have its power, you know, the, the power of the grace, that sacrament is still there, and of the truth of, of God's plan. We'll continue our conversation with Archbishop Lucas on Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this program has been helpful for you, that you will 
first pray for our mission, which is to bring authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.